Well, it's so good to be back with you again, everybody. My name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I'm thankful that you're here today. And I was just thinking back that one year ago, we stood up here on this stage and shared the greater vision with Genesis Church. Now, you weren't here (laughs) because a year ago we did that all online. But a year ago, uh, we shared that with you. And some of you who have been here for the last two weeks have heard this so much, or maybe you've been here for a year at Genesis and you've heard this vision so much that you are sick and tired of it. Well, let me just tell you, me too. All right. (laughs) Uh, But we know that vision leaks. And so I want to share it with you again for a moment as we start today. An important part of our greater vision was to raise seven and a half million dollars to do three things. We wanted to make disciples, reach our cities, and change the world. Now, making disciples is all about what we do. It's the ministry we do week in and week out. It's Sunday worship services. It's Gen Kids, GSM for our students. It's uh, connection groups like Ben talked about here a minute ago. Uh, It's giving money and sending people to our outreach partners. We want to continue doing all those things. We want to take some steps forward in them and uh, make even more progress in helping people find their way back to God in the communities we serve, specifically in Noblesville and Carmel and in Hamilton County. And that accounts for 4.2 million of the seven and a half million that we're wanting to raise. We also wanna reach our cities. Uh, We want appealing facilities with space and seats and parking places to help more people find their way back to God. And three million uh, total out of that seven and a half million dollars is for that to purchase a new facility or build a new facility for our Noblesville campus, as well as to make some improvements to our Carmel campus. Now, three million won't buy the building that we think we need, but it's as sure as a good down payment, and it's more than we had a year ago. Now, more than just relocating, though, we want our facilities to be welcome spaces. We want them to be open to the public where people can come in and gather, not just on Sundays, but through the week. Uh, We can just envision a place where when you go invite your friends and neighbors to church, they go, oh, I know that building. My daughter went to preschool there. Or we used to play on that playground that's there. Or I've used their Wi-Fi in their co-working space. You know, a building where it's used seven days a week where we never have to turn the lights off. And the final piece of that greater vision was to change the world. And with that, we want to donate $300,000 over and above what we already give You should know that even before uh, we started with Greater, we were giving away 10% of every dollar that we received to our outreach partners. Well, we wanted to give another $300,000 over and above that to do three specific things. We wanted to uh, support homeless and at-risk kids in our school system. Before Greater started, I met with uh, the the assistant superintendent and uh, the finance director of Noblesville Schools who told me that there were 108 homeless students in the Noblesville School District. And I just thought that was unacceptable for a place like Hamilton County. And so we wanted to do something about that. We wanted to help partner with our church ICF in Albania. Uh, They are doing amazing things in Albania and Tirana and the surrounding place. And if you were at our vision and prayer night on Tuesday night, you got to hear from their pastor, Altin, talk about that. Uh, We wanted to help them. And then uh, we just see that God is doing some amazing things in our church in foster care and adoption. Uh, and we wanted to help out with that as well. And so, you know what? I'm happy to say that we've made progress in all three of those areas. Uh, we've been able to keep making disciples, even in this jumbled up world caused by the last year. Uh, we've seen people find their way back to God, both in person at our services and online. We had, I think, 16 people that proclaimed a new faith in Jesus through our online services over the last year. Uh, we're seeing new people coming every week. We're seeing new faces even today. And people are getting connected through groups. And we are experiencing new life everywhere at Genesis Church. 
We've also made some progress towards a new facility. Now, it's hard to see on the surface. We don't have a place picked out yet. I'm not here to make an announcement today, but I'm comparing our search for a new facility kind of like, you've probably heard this analogy, watching a duck swim across the pond. Uh, on the surface, everything looks calm and cool, but under the water, his feet are paddling like crazy. And that's kind of what's been happening with us. We've looked at quite a few buildings and building sites. We've crossed some off the list. We've got a couple of intriguing possibilities, uh, but nothing to decide yet. Uh, but we have been able to set aside over $1.1 million towards the purchase or build of a new facility, which is a really good start. And finally, uh, we've been making some progress in changing our world. We've been giving some money away. And so just to give you a, a little taste of that, in 2019, before Greater, our church gave away $180,000 to our ministry partners, which is a pretty good chunk, $180,000, right? In 2020, we gave away $262,000, $82,000 more. Can we just celebrate the Lord in that? That's awesome <laughs> progress because of your generosity in greater. We've given grants to Noblesville and Westfield schools to serve at-risk kids in those communities. Uh, we've supported ministries like the Cooper House, who is coming up alongside families who are involved in the foster care system. We've given them about $20,000 over the past year, and we've given more than $20,000 to our friends at ICF Church in Albania. Be encouraged, Genesis. The Lord is doing some amazing things through you and through your generosity here. But with all that, remember, our number one goal was not $7.5 million. Our number one goal was 100% engagement from our church. A year ago, we thought that we need about 750 commitments to hit that goal. And while not meeting in person, uh, we, were one of the, we had the privilege of being one of the first churches to do a commitment Sunday completely online. Yay, Genesis. Um, while not meeting in person certainly hurt, the truth is we fell short of that goal. We fell short of 100% engagement. Still, we received 150 commitments for a total of $4.2 million or 2.1 per year. I'm happy to say that our giving last year has been well above that 2.1 million rate, uh, but the mission hasn't changed. We still want to make disciples. We still want to reach our cities and we still want to change the world. And we still believe it will take every family, every person who calls Genesis Church their home, uh, taking that next step in generosity to make that happen. And so later in the service, you'll have the opportunity, if you've never made a commitment to greater before, to do just that. You know, we've got commitment cards on tables in the back of the room. Maybe you grabbed one of those on your way in, or maybe you need to get up and go grab one now. Or we have this QR code that you can uh, shoot your camera at, and that'll take you directly to our online commitment card. But however you decide to commit, I pray that the Lord leads you to participate in whatever way that he would have you, and I pray that you would be obedient to that. Uh, let's just take a moment right here and pray, and then we'll get on with our story. Uh, Heavenly Father, I am so thankful for what you're doing in greater. Even as I just repeat what I just said in the first service, I'm encouraged by the work that you're doing in making disciples and reaching our cities and changing the world through Genesis Church. I'm thankful for the generosity of our church and the way that uh, a year ago people stepped out of their comfort zone and gave in new ways or for the first time. And Lord, we just, we want to be obedient to you. And so I just ask for whatever you have for us, that you would make it clear to us and that you would help us to follow where you lead. And Jesus will trust you with the results of that. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Hey, if you have your Bibles with you, open them to Ruth chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, you're welcome to grab one off the table in the back. And if you don't own a Bible, please take that one with you. It's our gift to you so that you can read along with us. We're finishing up our series, as Ben said, called Greater Still. Uh, One year after we stood up here and shared that vision, that greater vision with you, one year after the greater series we did in March 2020. But we're also continuing on our reading plan. Uh, We've been doing a reading plan this year. We're reading through the Bible in a year. We're using the Read Scripture app. And so if you haven't started with us, uh, I want to invite you to start now. Start today. Today's day 80 on our reading plan. And so you can just dive right in. I don't encourage you to go back and try to read the first 79 days this week. Uh, That will be a little overwhelming, a little overpowering for you probably, unless you've just got all day to read um, and you won't be able to absorb what you want. But let's start with day 80 and read along with us. Uh, This week, if you're caught up, you would have read the story of Ruth. Now, this is a really easy story to read. It probably takes less than a half an hour to read, uh, but it's so good and it's so full of interesting twists and turns uh, and it's a little bit unpredictable, but what I see in it today is the goodness of God's provision for us, that even when we don't see a way, even when it doesn't make sense, God is a good God and a good provider for us. We're going to start with Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, so if you've got your Bibles open there, we'll start right there, and it starts like this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And I'm just going to stop right there because there's already two things that I think we need to investigate about this story. Ruth takes place in the time of the judges. So many times we have this tendency to think we're reading through the Bible in chronological order. This story is actually pulled out of Judges. And so if you've finished the book of Judges right before this, what you know about Judges is that it was a dark time for the nation of Israel. In in fact, Judges is hard. I I think it's the hardest book in the Bible to, to get through, honestly. And it's not because it's got a lot of hard words in it. It does have a lot of people that you have to remember, but it's because the theme of the book of Judges is so hard. As you read through the book of Judges, you see this theme that's repeating. And the theme is this. In those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what they saw fit. And if you can just imagine what it's like to live in a society like that, where everybody just did as they pleased because there's no law and order. And that's what's happening in the book of Judges. And it's in the midst of that kind of environment that this, I mean, I think somewhat encouraging story in the book of Ruth happens. It's in the middle of a really dark time and it all starts with a famine all over the land of Judah, which is the southern part of Israel, There's a famine. There's no food available to be found. Now, this can be a little hard for us to imagine in the 21st century that there's no food anywhere with all our modern farming techniques and our super center grocery stores and our global food supply chain. We can pretty much get any kind of food we want anytime we want, right? I mean, if you want genuine Neapolitan pizza, you can go get that. It's right next to the place where they serve genuine Japanese ramen. I mean, uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, you can get basically any kind of food you want for any meal at any time. We don't really know what it's like to have a famine. But I think a year ago, honestly, was probably the closest that many of us in our lifetime have ever come to being in a famine. Do you remember what it was like a year ago to try to find meat at the grocery store? Do you remember what it was like to go try to buy toilet paper at the grocery store or to find cleaning supplies? I mean, we were sold out of stuff. Stores everywhere were running out of everything. I mean, I even heard that Ben Krause could not find those jeggings he likes so much anywhere. 
If you know, you know, right? Um, yeah, stores are running out of everything, and it was quite possible that you could go from store to store to store and completely strike out for the day. And we all wondered what was going to happen. Like, how had our lives just changed that there were things that we couldn't find or buy anymore? Well, Ruth 1 starts with that. It starts with a famine in the land. There's no food. And you understand, because it starts with a famine, you understand something's going to happen. There's a story named after this woman that we haven't met yet, and it starts with a famine. How is it going to end? How is this story going to go? My, my daughter, Audrey, is 17, and she loves movies. She loves going to the movies especially, which has been, this has been a hard year for her. But she loves watching them at home. Uh, I think she stayed up late last night to watch the entire four-hour Snyder Cut of Justice League on HBO Max, uh, starting at about 9 o'clock. So she's probably, uh, hopefully she's at church now at Carmel, but she's probably still in bed. Um, but she loves movies. She has her favorite director. She has her favorite actors. But the thing that's so annoying about Audrey with movies that drives Benita and I crazy is that uh, she can sit down in front of a movie we're watching and watch it for about three minutes and predict what's going to happen at the end of the movie. And she's right like 95% of the time. But I don't even think Audrey could have predicted how Ruth's story is going to end. Well, a year ago, as leaders of the church, we were in a similar place. You know, our staff and our elders, we were getting together and praying and strategizing, but we were concerned. Like we were staring down the barrel of something we've never lived for, lived through before, a, a global pandemic, uh, a statewide stay-at-home order. And what was going to happen? What would happen to our staff? Would we be able to continue paying our salaries? What, what would happen to attendance? Our, when we're able to open back up, would people come back or would they still be too afraid? Would they stay at home? Now, if the dire predictions of the economist came true, what would happen to giving? Like, would it fall off a cliff like they thought it would? I mean, would we even survive? Plus, we were starting to work on our annual budget. You know, our, our church runs on a July to June budget, and usually April, May is when we start working on the budget for next year. What on earth were we supposed to do? We had just gotten all these commitments from Greater. Most people that were committing were committing more than they had been giving in the year before. So do we raise the budget based on those commitments, or do we take into effect what the economists were saying and lower our budget? Did we have to cut expenses somewhere? Boy, did we have questions. And I'm guessing you did too. Like about your personal economy. How would your personal economy be affected? How would food prices be affected or gas prices be affected? How, how about your income or your business? What was going to happen there? What was going to happen in your school? You know, all of us, all of us were truly dependent on what was happening in the world around us. Like our for, for followers of Jesus, probably for the first time in our lives, we were having to depend on God for even our well-being and our provision. Like we were trusting that God was going to come through. And that's the situation that Ruth finds herself in in this story. But now we haven't met Ruth yet. We're going to meet uh, another family first. So let's start with uh, verse 1 again. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah together with his wife and sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. And the man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab to live there. So we meet Naomi. Naomi's going to be this pivotal player in this story. But what about Ruth? She's the one the book is named after. Uh, we're going to meet her next. Verse 3 says, Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died... And she was left with her two sons. Now, this has already started out bad for Naomi. We're three verses into the story, and we've got a famine, 
a move to a foreign country, and her husband died. But at least she still has her sons. Verse 4, her sons, they married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. And after they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband, this poor woman. Uh, she moves away from home because of a famine. She loses her husband, then she loses both of her sons, and she's left to fend for herself and for her two daughters-in-law in this foreign land, this place that she had never been before 10 years ago. Uh, she's got now trusted with the welfare of her two daughters-in-law, one of whom is Ruth. But uh, Naomi finally gets some good news. They've been there 10 years, and the good news is the famine is over back in Judah, so it's safe for her to return home. Uh, her daughters-in-law, uh, she tells them, hey, I have to go back. It's my best chance to make a life for myself, but you guys should stay here. You're young. You can find new husbands. You can find new ways to make it. You're from here. You're from Moab. So once you stay behind and get married again and make a life for yourself, I'm going to go back to my hometown in Moab. And Orpah agrees. She says, I'm, yeah, that makes sense. I'm going to stay here. But Ruth says, no way. I'm going to be loyal to you, Naomi. Here's what she says in verse 16. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn your back from you or turn, my back, turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, even if death separates you and me. And, and Naomi gives up. She gives in to Ruth, and she just agrees to travel back to Judah with Ruth, uh, this Moabite woman. But when she gets home, something has changed in Naomi. You can see that something's changed in her spirit. There's this time where uh, she sees some women that she knew from when she was there before, and uh, they recognize her, and they say, they're excited to see her, and they say, can this be Naomi? Has she come home to see us? And watch how she responds, verse 20. She says this, don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara. Now that word Mara means bitter. She says, call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. And then she says this really telling statement. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. And we know that Naomi's empty because she went away with her husband and two sons and she comes back without them. But I think Naomi is talking about something deep in her soul like something in her spirit that's missing, that the Lord has brought me back empty. I, I just want to stop right there and ask you, does that statement resonate with you at all? I mean, if you're a follower of Jesus, do you remember a time when your faith felt really full? Like you couldn't wait to come to church. You couldn't wait to open up God's word and read scripture. You couldn't wait to blast that worship song on the radio. But now, like, after living through the last year or maybe some personal circumstances in your life, you just feel so empty, like this really strange and uncertain year has just drained you completely and you're left unsure of your purpose or even your identity. I just want you to know that that's not unusual. That's not wrong for you to feel that way. I hope you'll be encouraged by what happens in Naomi's story that we read today. So back in Bethlehem, the women decide that Ruth, being the younger, should go out and find a field to glean in. Now, that's a weird word. It's one we don't use very often, but you need to know this happens during the barley harvest. And what would happen is that uh, the barley harvest was done by hand. 
So these wealthy landowners would hire help to come in and harvest the grain and they would, they would cut the stalks of grain and then they would thresh them, which is they would uh, beat them up and down until the grain fell to the ground because the grain was heavy and the chaff would blow off into the wind. But then some of the grain inevitably would fall on the ground and they would leave that on the ground. They would not pick that up. And then uh, some of the edges of the field that were a little harder to get to, they would just leave that grain standing in the field. And the gleaners were people, usually poor people, who would come along behind them and pick that grain to feed their families. And because this field was in Judah, the wealthy landowners would leave that grain there for the people to do this gleaning. And the reason why is really important and it's instructive. And if you've been reading along with us, you already know this because back in Leviticus 19, the Lord told them to leave that there. Here's what it says. Leviticus 19 says this, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. Now realize that a, a very wise, a very uh, thrifty landowner, what, that's what they would do. They would go back a second time and make sure they hadn't missed anything. But God told them not to do that. He said, instead, leave those leftovers for the poor and the foreigner. And guess what? Ruth was both. She was poor. She didn't have anything to eat, but she was a foreigner. She was from Moab. And so she was able to go glean this field. Well, it turns out this field she's gleaning is from a man named Boaz. It's owned by a relative. Boaz is a relative of Naomi's. And when Boaz find out, finds out who Ruth is and that he's here with Naomi, he's very generous to her. He tells Ruth, first of all, don't go to any other fields and glean. I, I want you to stay here and my men, my harvesters, they'll take care of you. They'll make sure that you're protected, that you're not attacked and that you have plenty to eat. And then he goes to his men and he says, hey, when you're, when you're harvesting that grain, leave some extra behind for her to pick up. Like he's really taking care of her. And then he uh, brings her into his table and feeds her at his table. This is a huge privilege. I'm sure that none of his hired men got to eat at Boaz's own table, but this gleaner, this poor woman who's not even from here, he was, she was invited to go eat at his table. And then Boaz as kind of the, the final kind of crown on this whole thing, sends her home with so much grain <laughs> that she almost can't carry it all. It's so much food that she's got it probably in every bag, every container that she owns. It's almost like, like bringing home leftovers from the Cheesecake Factory. You know, there's just like so much food. You just don't know what you're gonna do with it. Well, Ruth gets home and Naomi is stunned by how much food she brings home. She says to Ruth, what, what field did you go to? Where did you go glean from? And Ruth says, from a man named Boaz. And a light goes off in Naomi's head. And she goes, I know that name. You know, Boaz was a relative, but he wasn't just any relative. He was a close relative who was able to be what's known as a kinsman redeemer. Now, here's what that means. In ancient Israel, property traveled with a family. It was always handed down from generation to generation to generation, rarely sold, and stayed within the scope of a tribe. You know, there were 12 tribes of Israel. Each tribe had their own property marked off as part of Israel. And so a person's land would generally stay within a tribe, within a family. And uh, when a man, and through the, through the male lineage, and when a man died without an heir, that property was kind of up for grabs. Anybody who came in and married his wife could get that property. But there was this rule in Israel that if you were a close relative, you had the right to marry that widow and buy or redeem that property uh, to keep it in the family. 
And Boaz was a close relative. He was close enough to Naomi and her family that he had the right to marry the widow Ruth and redeem his family's property. Now, Naomi understands this. This is all happening in her mind. She gets this. So she tells Ruth, here's what you need to do. Tonight, when he goes to bed, go lay at Boaz's feet. Now, some people read this and they think it's a very sensual thing, but it's really not. It really is just an act of submission. It's an act of saying, hey, I'm at your mercy. I'm here uh, for whatever you want. And so fast forward through the story a bit. Turns out that Boaz isn't the closest relative. He's not the first kinsman redeemer. There's a closer relative. And so when Boaz finds out about this, he's got to go offer this opportunity to this other relative. And there's this really weird but very meaningful story of Boaz going in front of the elders of the city and, and, and taking off his sandal and handing it to another man. It's really weird. It's very um, message-filled, but you need to read that on your own if you haven't read it already. Um, but the man turns it down. Boaz wins the right to marry Naomi and to redeem this land. And so uh, Boaz and Ruth are married and Naomi gains a son again and she is cared for and Ruth eventually gets pregnant and gives birth to a son and she names him Obed. And uh, they lived happily ever after. But then maybe you read that story and you think, that's really great and encouraging, but why is that in the Bible? Like, I'm reading about all these judges and all this stuff's happening in Israel and here are these people that I know nothing about and they're not kings and they're not prophets and like, why is that even here? Well, we see that in chapter four. What does this have to do with God's people? Uh, Ruth chapter four, verse 16 says, then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, David, you may know that name. He eventually becomes king of Israel and he'll become a popular king and one who unites the entire kingdom of Israel. He'll be a victorious king who's able to beat back most of Israel's enemies. But most importantly, God will tell David that it's from your lineage that will come the eternal king the one king that's always going to rule over Israel, the the redeemer of mankind will come from your rule. So generations later, from the line of David, what we see is that the kinsman redeemer Boaz is eventually an ancestor to the redeemer of the world, Jesus. Now, I told you in the beginning that this story was really all about God's goodness in his provision for us, that he's a good provider, even when it doesn't make sense, even when we don't see a way. And so what I want to do is just look back quickly through this story and show you some points of what I mean by that. You know, we think about Naomi. Naomi met Ruth by accident. There was a famine in the land and she and her husband and her sons moved away and moved to Moab. Otherwise, if there was no famine, she would have never met Ruth. Now, Ruth, a Moabite, only agreed to travel back to Bethlehem because her husband died. Ruth seemingly entered a seemingly random field and started gleaning there, which she was only allowed to glean because generations before God had told the people of Israel not to harvest the edges of their field and leave the grain behind for the gleaners, uh, but to leave it for the poor and the foreigner. And Ruth was both of those. So she was able to glean in this field. Um, But it turns out it was the field of a relative. Uh, When Boaz found out who Ruth was, he gave her so much grain that she was barely able to carry it. You know she wasn't expecting that. Ruth took a big chance by laying at Boaz's feet. He could have rejected her. He could have sent her home. He could have sent her back to Moab, but he didn't. 
Uh, Boaz did the right thing when he found out there was another man who could be a kinsman redeemer by bringing Ruth before the elders and, and before a closer relative and offering him the chance to be the kinsman redeemer. But God, in all of that, provided a way for Ruth and Boaz to stay together. Because of God's provision, Ruth gained a husband. Naomi gained a son, and Boaz and Ruth became the father of Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David. God's provision was good. Even when things didn't go to plan, even when it didn't make sense, what he provides is always better than what we want and more than what we know we need. And in this case, God's provision looked a lot like a man named Boaz. You know, when we started our greater initiative a year ago, my wife Benita and I sat down and we looked at our whole budget. Like we wanted to know, we knew we wanted to increase our monthly giving. We knew we were going to do that. And we knew we wanted to give a one-time gift. So we had to figure out where that came from. But we looked at every expense that we had and where we could cut back and where we could take some stored resources and give them to the church. And in the end, we agreed to make the biggest commitment we'd ever made to a church before. And then uh, on advanced commitment night, the week before we were going to have that uh, big commitment Sunday, Benita couldn't come. And so I came by myself and I sat in this room and I listened to the vision again. And I'd been involved with putting the vision together for a year almost, but I listened to it again. And the Lord gently, as he does, tapped me on the shoulder and said, you know, you've made a generous commitment, but you know where every dollar is going to come from. Why don't you trust me? And that kind of stung because I felt like making a generous contribution was trusting him. But the honest truth was, I knew where every dollar was coming from and there was no place for God to show up in that. And so without my wife knowing, I added $2,000 to what we had agreed to commit and put it on the card and turned it in. I had no idea where it would come from, but I knew that we served a good God who provides. I knew that in every case in my life, his provision had always been more than I'd hoped for and more than I knew I needed. I knew that every blessing comes from him, that we had nothing apart from what the Lord had trusted us with and that I needed to trust him to come through. You know, and then we get something like a stimulus check, you know, that we're not expecting. Stuff happens all the time. I, I love hearing those stories from people who have made a commitment, not knowing what was going to happen, and then to see God come through in amazing ways. And one of my favorite things about this series has been hearing the stories of people here at Genesis, of you guys who have made those commitments and God has come through. And I've got one more I wanna share with you today. It's a story of some friends of mine. Francis and Alex Ramirez are teachers in the Noblesville school system and they're an awesome part of Genesis Church. They're good friends. And I just wanna take a moment and share their story with you. Take a look at this. We have been coming to Genesis for four years now, and uh, we, we love everything about Genesis. Um, early on, we were really attracted to the, the mission of just fi- helping people find their way back to, to God. Um, we have found different ways to kind of help in the church, and Alex has uh, served on, on the worship team, and I've served in, in Gen Kids and um, helped with the welcome, welcome tent, and uh, we've loved everything about it. We would describe ourselves as generous and giving people with our um, time and in our friendships and being involved at church, but through Greater, I've, we really learned to take that next step in our generosity. It was good for us to kind of really say, hey, listen, to this point, we haven't really contributed financially to the church. You know, we've, we've given our time and, you know, our energy. This was an opportunity for us to really 
put a stake in the ground and, and talk about ways that we can grow our family, you know, through through the generosity that comes with, with giving to a campaign like Greater. We attended the, the commitment night with when Greater first launched, and um, I think the thing or the moment that kind of really stood out for us that really got us on board with, you know, contributing to Greater was um, when our own, you know, pastoral staff just kind of shared their personal experience with, with Greater and how they were contributing. and. And, and I think, you know, Steve and his wife, Anita, shared personally that, like, they they were contributing, you know, more than they've ever given. And I think, you know, Steve even shared that, you know, he was going to go a percent above what his wife, Benita, you know, was even aware of. And so I think the true authentic moments that really helped us maybe get over the hump if we were kind of wavering back and forth on kind of where we were going to go with it, I think that moment put us in. And I think the next moments were just kind of how much. How much were we going to try to get? Where can we, where can we do our part? Releasing our grip, I think, is going to is part of the biggest lesson right now. Just don't don't love your don't love your stuff that much. Don't. It was greater. Scary. Didn't yeah. It was scary. the initial yeah. thought of it was a little bit scary, and then even learning further or at like a deeper level that it's it's not just like what you have left over, but actually looking at. No, I need to. I need to start with this as my as my gift, as my offering to God. We were still looking at it as like He can have the leftovers. Decide well, how much can we give away, but still, you know, put be comfortable, be comfortable putting savings. So I think for the first time, that was a shift for us in just our approach. Wanting to do it was never that was never an issue, but then you you have to wrestle with the side of you that is worldly. There's some repentance of like, I hold too tightly to this. I didn't, I didn't know that I did that until I was asked to give some of it away. And I didn't realize that, that I, I do cling to it a little bit. There's that security factor. But the flip side of that, the beautiful side of that is that when you do release that and you are more open-handed, then you do encounter the Lord and you do you do see him moving and you it opens you up to trust because really that that lack of that lack of giving or that clinging too tightly to our finances as if they really were ours learning that they were not and and letting that go allowed the Lord to show up in ways that we wouldn't have noticed before learning to give and be more generous has not been without its challenges for us but God has shown time and time again that that he's there for every step of it and he'll continue to be faithful I love uh, Francis and Alex and I'm, I'm thankful for their story um, and for their obedience. And they've given me permission to share with you that baby girl number four is due in May. And so uh, obviously that's an unexpected surprise and a blessing and a provision from God that's always greater than what we expect. So uh, I'm thankful for, for the stories of many of you who have stepped out in faith and started giving. And I'm also very aware that there are many of you who would love to give, but your financial position is just really, really tough right now. And I just want to offer something to you if that's you, if you're in that category. We've got a, 
a class starting in uh, the week after Easter, April 11th at our Carmel campus, and it's called Financial Peace University. Maybe you've heard of this, but uh, Financial Peace teaches principles that can help you save more, give more, and spend less, and get out of debt, and you can find out more at genesischurch.me or on the Genesis Church app. Again, it's at our Carmel campus uh, starting April 11th. If you want to sign up for that, there's information there. Our God is a good father. He's a good father, and he always knows what you need, and every blessing comes from him. His provision is perfect, and his timing is perfect. He's able to give us exactly what we need and when we need it. I want to give you one more example of that from the New Testament. Romans 5.8 tells us that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we didn't know what we needed, Christ died for us. God didn't wait until we recognized our need for him. He was proactive and he went first. And we are prone to wander away from him. We have a tendency to try to fix things on our own first, but God's timing is perfect. So while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And his provision is always perfect. He knows just what we need and he knows way more than we do what we think we need. See, here's what I think most of us think we need. Most of us, think we've got life like 90% figured out. And we just need a helper, right? We just need somebody to help us along. We just need a little nudge. We just need a friend. We just need, you know, somebody to help us a little bit. But that's not what the good news of Jesus is. The gospel of Jesus says that we are broken. That there is nothing we can do apart from God. That there's not one of us that's good. But because every blessing comes from God, he knows just what we need. We don't need a helper. We don't need a good luck charm. We need rescued. You know, God proclaimed the coming of Jesus this way. You know this from the Christmas story. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. He is Christ the Lord. God knew that we needed a savior. His provision is perfect. His timing is perfect. Every blessing comes from him. Let's pray and thank God for that. Heavenly Father, I'm thankful that before I knew I needed you, you were pursuing me. That story is the same for so many of us in this room, that before we knew what we needed, you were already after us. You were on it. And God, you didn't just send us a helper or a friend. You sent a savior. You sent your son to come and die on our behalf, to die the death that we deserved, but yet to be raised from the dead to show that you can overcome anything in our life. And God, some of us are in circumstances so deep right now, we don't know where to go, but your provision has already shown that you can overcome that. We're thankful for that, God. We thank you for your generosity. We thank you for what you provide for us. And we thank you for that your timing is always perfect. Thanks for sending Jesus to be our savior. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen. Hey, just remember that Greater is all about making disciples, reaching our cities, and changing the world. And just like the story of Ruth, which happened in a very dark time in the nation of Israel, we have an opportunity to be a light in a very dark time in our history. Like in Ruth's story, God's provision looked a lot like a man named Boaz. But in somebody's story, God's provision could look a lot like you. That you could be a light to someone else. But we need everybody on board if this is going to become a reality. So here's what's going to happen next. For those of you here who have not made a commitment to greater, we're going to give you a chance to do that right now. If you've got a commitment card in your hand, you can
pray over that one more time and fill that out. And when the band starts playing here in a minute, you can go ahead and take that to the back of the room, drop it in the, one of those two offering boxes in the back. Or if you want to do the online thing, you can fill out, you can hit, your, uh, hit this QR code on the screen with your camera. And they'll take you to your online commitment card. And uh, the number you want to put in that blank is the number that you're going to give to Genesis Church over the next year between now and next Easter. The total amount, everything, everything you give goes to greater. It's not you're giving to a building fund or you're giving to a compassion fund. Everything is one fund. So some of you are brand new to Genesis and you're just jumping in with us uh, into this chapter of our story that God is writing. I just want to tell you, first of all, welcome. I'm glad you're here. And if you've been here long enough to know that this is kind of going to be your church home, I want to invite you to be on this journey with us because I'm convinced that God wants something for you much more than he wants something from you. And some of you have been on this greater journey with us for a year. And if that's you, you don't need to fill out a new card today. If we've already got your commitment, that's awesome. Unless God has been working in your heart and you feel like maybe that was too easy. Maybe he's got something more. Maybe he wants to see more generosity from me. Maybe you feel God moving and using your, you and your generosity to fuel greater things happening in your home and in our communities. And today, maybe there's a stirring happening that God is challenging you to take a next step. What would that look like? Maybe next year is an even greater step of trust and sacrifice for you. And some of you have stored resources. You've got a, a motorcycle you need to sell or a boat you need to sell or a vehicle. You've got savings funds or stocks. Maybe you sold a business. Maybe God is calling you to do some out-of-the-box, like totally out-of-your-comfort-zone generosity. Well, we're going to give you some space right now. If you came with your spouse, talk through this together, pray about it in just a moment as the band starts playing again. We're going to close with one last song. And while that song is playing, you're welcome to get up and go drop your cards in the back. Genesis, God is moving. And what he's doing and what he has for us is greater still.